1: And I'm delighted to welcome on the show today, Bruce James Wilson from Florida's Space Coast in the United States of America, to talk about his book, The Oubliette. Now, when I first looked at the book, my initial thought was, why the title? And what is an Oubliet? Why the title? Well, that I'll let you all figure out and when you've read the book. You can decide for yourself why the author called the book the oubliette. But as to what is an oubliette, well, it refers to a secret dungeon, a pit, with a trapdoor in the ceiling as the only means of entry and escape. The word itself derives from the French word oubli, which translates as forgot. So simply an oubliette was a secret pit, dungeon, mainly in a medieval castle where prisoners were thrown down and forgotten about. Does this give you a sense of what's coming down the line? Maybe, maybe not. But formulate your own opinion once you've listened to this podcast and looked at the book. Just to give you a little insight as to Bruce himself, he was born in Miami and spent most of his childhood boating in the Biscayne Bay area, no doubt trying to keep cool from the hot Florida sun, and no doubt trying to look cool at the same time, <laughs> but there was fun loving summer days there in Florida, in Miami. As a youngster, he moved with his family to Florida's Space Coast where he presently lives with his wife, Nancy. However, he does most of his writing sitting on a veranda in a cool oasis of woodland estate at his sister-in-law's house in North Carolina. And having previously chatted to him there on the veranda while we were putting this podcast together, I can't but agree with him what a wonderful place to write with the local bird life singing in the nearby woods. It's a pity that we can't do the podcast from there, everybody, because it was breathtaking, and the bird life behind him singing away was just stunning. But there you go. You're just going to have to put it with him, everybody, sitting in his Florida house. (laughs) Anyway, let's invite him on the show to talk about himself and his book, The Oubliette. Bruce, come and join me.
0: Hello, John, and thanks for having me on. How are things in jolly old England today?
1: I'll tell you what, the weather is fantastic. The sun is absolutely amazing. I've been out for a walk in the countryside today, and I'd probably say we're hotter here than you are in Florida, because the last podcast I did was yesterday, and it was a gentleman from Florida again. He says we're cool, calm, and cloudy here, and I says we're hot and sunny and you can keep your clouds.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're we're cool calm and and uh sunny today.
1: So, anyway, Bruce, I know you write under the name B. James Wilson. Would you care to tell the audience a little about yourself and why you wrote this book?
0: Uh sure. Um you know, I got interested in writing as a kid and writing is really about reading. Uh, I read, I read the book She by H. Ryder Haggard and it just set me on fire. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to tell stories that transported people, you know, to worlds that they otherwise would never know. So as far as the Oublia goes, it really I taught Bible for uh, 20 years, and in every class, when we went through Genesis, we would get to chapter six, and people would have unlimited questions about the sons of God that are mentioned there, uh... And them them consorting with the daughters of men, and producing what the Bible calls Nephilim. So that was the inspiration. Is all those questions? I did a lot of research, uh, uh, much of it in the Book of Enoch, and I learned everything I could about these Nephilim, and I found the story intriguing. So that was the inspiration for you, yeah.
1: Really? So were you – I mean, I certainly was. Were you a fan of The Lord of the Rings?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Yes, We've got
1: something in common there, everyone. Because, you know, sometimes when – you know, towards the end of the book – there's, there's a tower that everybody climbs. And when I was reading that, Bruce, do you know what? I could, it took me right back to the tower in the Lord of the Kings. Um, yes. and I just thought, I bet Bruce loved Lord of the Rings, not Lord of the Kings, Lord of the Rings. Yes, I do. Thought so. Thought so. There you go, everyone. I was right. Yee um, the book, everyone has 43 chapters. We're not going to go into all 43 chapters because if we did, we'd never end. We'd be here forever and a day. And <laughs> we would. If this is a chunky book, everybody. And that's not the concept of this podcast. You know, the whole idea of this podcast is to give you, the listeners, the audience, a, uh, an understanding of flavor of what the book is about. So we're going to sample eight chapters. And these are chapters that both myself and Bruce have picked out because we think they're the most significant chapters within the book, which would give you an overall account of what this book is about. So, Bruce, if I don't mind, I'd like to go to chapter one, which you head up, who's down there. You set the scene in New York City. Mike Brennan is a fire rescuer. He's the main protagonist throughout the whole book. It's 9-11, 2001. The Twin Towers' images of collapsing are beamed across the world. In the opening paragraph, you have Mike peering through dirty glass into a building's basement, a building that is on fire. He's looking into a pit where he has seen movement, albeit shadowy movement. Against regulations, he goes down to explore his instincts, and he comes across two street kids whose parents are either in jail or hooked up on drugs. So here's the oubliet, everybody. The basement, that's the pit, that's the dungeon. And the two street kids, abandoned and forgotten by society. It's a stunning, powerful start to this book. There's two street kids, the boy not abandoning his sisters, who's trapped under the stairwell in a furnace. Of fire that's about to engulf them, and Mike's heroic attempts to bring these forgotten street kids to safety. My question to you, Bruce, is here. And it's going to be interesting what the answer is going to be. What was the thought process going on in your head when you constructed this startling first chapter?
0: Well, thanks for the question, John. <laughs> Um, There's an interesting backstory to chapter one, and here's what it is. In the original manuscript, that was actually chapter four. Really? Yes, but my most uh, trusted beta reader, when she read the book, told me that she almost didn't read the book. Because she got to chapter three and she still didn't know anything about the main character. She, she felt she couldn't connect to him. And on that recommendation, I decided to bring the main character to, to the front of the book and introduce him. But let me explain my reasoning for not doing that, you know, in the original manuscript in the original manuscript it opens with mike waking up in the darkness and he doesn't know who he is he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't know how he got there so so i i you know i i told the story from that point onward Uh, and that took three chapters before we got to what is now chapter one. Uh, and I thought that it was a good idea since Mike didn't know who he was that maybe the readers shouldn't know either. It turned out that wasn't a good idea. So, so, uh, I made the switch and, uh,
1: and, uh, that's how that chapter became chapter one. I think the switch uh, was, was, was right. Whoever suggested that, they got that right. Because yes, when you have a book, everybody, you've got to get the first two chapters there. You've got to grip the, the, the audience, the listeners, the viewers. And so your first two chapters have got to be absolutely on the, on the mark. You might have a fantastic ending, but if you haven't got a good start, Nobody's going to look at the ending, so I think that person yeah, is absolutely right because it's a stunning opening chapter.
0: And this is why she's my most trusted beta reader.
1: There you go, trust her. Yep. Um, Bruce, let's move on to chapter four. Boy, who was all righty. This chapter for me, Bruce, captures an inner imprisonment people can find themselves in, in a world of their own darkness. People can be in their own dark hole with only one way in and out. People whose society, uh, a bustling society, have forgotten, don't want to know about. They're in their own inner oubliette. So here we go again, everybody. Oubliette is coming up in the book. Trapped in their own minds. So you know, you can you can have an oubliette be a physical thing. And it can also be a mental thing as well. And this is the mental bit. Um, And the story of Michael here, the image of a small boy, a small boy who had seen too much and known too little. One of hundreds, perhaps thousands, who wandered the streets and alleys of the New York City, never knowing the warmth of human kindness. Michael fears of vertigo, which if you have ever been unfortunate enough to experience anybody, it's terrifying. So, Bruce, can you tell us why the storyline in this chapter, and why now in the book, this time in the book?
0: Uh, certainly, I guess I want to say that that you've perceived the right thing. We live in in three worlds. We live in a physical world, an intellectual world, and a spiritual world. And the story uh, that I'm telling in the Yet is about how all those three worlds intermingle and relate to each other. Uh, so Mike has found himself in this uh dark place, and as I said, he doesn't know who he is. He's, he's suffering from amnesia. And, uh, suddenly this boy appears. Well, I have to tell you as a writer that, uh, sometimes stories, you know, they, they take their own path and, uh, characters come up and they sort of take over the story. Uh, you know, I, I attribute that to the spiritual aspects of writing or any art. And that's kind of what happened with the boy is I wanted Mike to begin to remember something about his childhood. And so I sort of told that story in there, but I wanted to make it uh, real to him in the moment and so this boy who's sort of a combination of him in his childhood and the boy he was trying to rescue in the basement he suddenly appears to him in this darkness and uh he becomes sort of a a a path, is is Mike, the boy, keeps appearing and disappearing, and Mike is kind of following him. And what's happening is the boy is leading Mike to the oubliette, where the rest of the story will take place. Um, did I answer the question?
1: You did, because... And when I, I read it, to... when I read that chapter, I immediately thought he's he's got flashbacks here of the boy he's rescued from, you know, in the chapter one. And yes. I also started to think, is it the boy in that chapter or is this the boy in himself when he was younger or is it both? And yeah. I'm thinking now maybe it's a little bit of both but let the viewers make their own mind up. Um, Bruce, I want to go on to uh, chapter 12. Now we are moving quickly through the book, everybody, because when I do the podcast, I always pick a few chapters from the beginning and some towards the uh, the middle and some towards the end. So you, you get a flavor of what the book is about. So, chapter 12 bruce you what now you wanted this when we were talking about what chapters put in the podcast you specifically said i want chapter 12 to go in um which is headed up sticks now so you said to me well as i said it's a very significant chapter to you so you start the chapter off i quote in mike's next awareness he was lying naked in a fetal position on the cobbled floor of the Oubliette, facing the great wooden doors. You take us back to the opening chapter scenes of Mike in the burning building basement, nine eleven, and the street kits. This is what I think it is. Why is this chapter so important for you? And would it be important for those people who want to read the book?
0: Um, You know, I hope that it would be important to them, but I'll tell you why it's important to me, is I think that one of the biggest failures in, in Western society today is our failure to recognize the existence of a spiritual world. We try to live our lives as if we were beings that are strictly physical and intellectual, you know, emotional between that. Uh, but the reality is that we're missing a leg. And unless you, that third leg is in place. Uh, your life can be a disaster. And that third leg is your spiritual existence. This chapter brings that out to the fore. Uh, you have a battle going on between this demon, Azazel, and the main character, Mike. They're both trapped in an oubliette. Both of them want to get out. And in order to do that, Azazel is trying to convince Mike that they can only do that through cooperation. Uh, this is a great ploy of the devil and his minions is first to convince you that they don't exist. And secondly, to, to battle for your mind. Uh, you know these evil forces want to take over your mind and and make you see the world in a way that's actually a lie. Uh, so that's what's going on here in this chapter. Uh as as a background because because our audience didn't get this uh this chapter follows an event where Mike's goes through this disastrous examination of, of a pair of great wooden doors that exist in the Ubliat. Uh, these doors represent time and circumstance. But when Mike went up to, to examine them, the the demon warned him not to not to go there. Because he was, he, because he told him that these are the doors to hell. And he would regret uh, stepping up to them. But Mike went anyway, and uh, when he gets up there, suddenly he finds himself surrounded by flames. And he manages to escape, but not without getting burned. And by the way, his nakedness represents his vulnerability.
1: Yes, it that's what I thought, his vulnerability. And it's quite yes. striking here because here you've got him in flames. Again, this is in his own mind. And immediately it's going back to chapter one, that important chapter, the flames eng- yes. engulfing. He's rescuing the two street kids. He's facing flames there as well. But they're physical flames. Yes. These are mental flames. Yes. And they're spiritual right. flames. That's the whole concept of the Oubliette.
0: When Mike wakes up after all these flames surrounding him, mm. the the demon explains to him that that, that was Spix, the river that runs through hell. Well, I had two purposes in this. And the one was to show how the demon is manipulating Mike. And the second was to try to open people's eyes to the fact that this burning hell that the Bible talks about actually exists. It's for real. It doesn't exist in this dimension, but it actually exists. So So really, that was the idea. And you'll note that at the end of the chapter, um, the demon closes their conversation by reminding uh, Mike, he says, fix. You know, he just reminds him that that's what he just experienced.
1: Hmm. Who's the demon, everyone? I'm not going to say. Read the book. Um, now, I like uh, the next chapter we're going to go to, Bruce, here. And it's chapter 14, and um, which you've headed up against darkness. Here we have a mixture of events. Mike's own Obliette, as we've already talked about, place of confinement, a gargoyle, Azul, the serpent, Elohim, creating heavens and earth, when there was only darkness, Mm. the power of the logos, the cursed words, let there be light. Mm. Light being the antithesis of darkness. This is a busy section of this book. Would you care to tell the listeners why you wrote it and what's going on here?
0: Uh, Sure. It's... um. You know, this is a continuing uh, theme of the spiritual world that exists around us. Uh, and, and what's happening is Azel is trying to convince Mike that evil is good and good is evil. Uh, I point out that this chapter, the whole point of view of this chapter is from the demon's point of view. And that again, he's lying because he's almost incapable of anything else. And in his lying, he's trying to convince Mike that evil is good and good is evil. So he introduces the idea of rebellion and he t- explains to Mike that, uh, that Mike himself is part of a rebellion against God. And, uh, and that, that is true by default. He, at the same time, in, in this effort to convince Mike, he, he does what Adam did in chapter three of Genesis. Uh, at the very beginning was he tries to voice responsibility off onto God. In in Genesis when God when Adam is eaten from the fruit of knowledge and God uh calls him on it, Adam's response is it was the woman, in other words, I, I'm not at fault, it was the woman that you gave me. And so you can see that Adam tried to blame God for what happened.
1: And of course, it's 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 then that they realised that he was naked, wasn't he? Yes. And and you talk about that, you know, in in your book with Mike. So this is all tying up everybody. Now, let's go to Chapter 20, Bruce. And I've got a little bit of sense of humour here, everybody. This is just my humour. Because the title of the book, sorry, the title of the chapter is called Assessing the Situation. Now, when I first saw this, it immediately took me back to um, the, the musical Oliver, and there was a character in that musical called Fagin, and he was played by the actor Ron Moody, and there's a scene in the, uh, in the musical, Oliver, we are reviewing the situation. <laughs> So it was just my sense of humor here when I saw the title, Assessing the Situation, I immediately thought of Fagin in the musical, Oliver, reviewing the situation. Hmm. <laughs> because it's about the same. We are. We're assessing the situation. It's doing the same thing. We but are. That's by the by. It's got absolutely nothing to do with the book, everybody. It's just my little sense of humor. And we all need a sense of humor. Believe you me. So, yes, we do. this is a short, snappy, uh, char- um, chapter involving Tony, Phil and Jim, who, the, you know, these are more sub characters, everybody coming into the book. Um, it's nicely embellishing the overall story. Uh, we're getting Mike out of a hole, but what made, so I'm asking the question is, what made you, Bruce, put this little storyline in the book at this stage of the book? Hmm.
0: Yeah, I do like Fagan's response. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, this chapter could be subtitled Meanwhile in Another Dimension. I mentioned earlier about us existing in three worlds, the physical world, the intellect, and the spiritual world. And... What's happening in this chapter is the physical world. Jim and Tony and Phil and the others are; these are fellow firefighters who are trying to rescue Mike from a collapsed building that he's in. And um, and so this is the physical world. Uh, Mike's condition in that world uh, is is. Uh, where there's an ongoing war in the spiritual realm, it influences the daily life in the physical world. And in that world, Mike's condition is grave. You know, while in the Upliette, Mike, in, in that awareness, uh, he knows he's injured, but he doesn't, he doesn't feel that he's dying. And, uh, I don't know if any of the viewers ever saw the movie, uh, Jacob's Bladder. There was a bit of that, a bit of that movie, uh, is an inspiration in this book. And in the movie, the the whole movie, an hour or so uh, long, is a story that's going on in the mind of a guy who's just seconds away from dying. So it was a real interesting movie, and it kind of, you know, that idea leaked over into the inspiration for the Bliad. So, so, yeah, this, hmm. this chapter <clears throat> is about Mike's team members trying to rescue him and, and course coming it's to the- realize how close to death he really is.
1: Because this is the building that he's in right on from Chapter 1, rescuing the two street kids, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is.
1: It is. And so what's it, happened
0: oh, is the building has collapsed. Yes.
1: Yeah. So you see, everybody, how powerful an opening chapter has to be because it reiterates right throughout the book, and it's done brilliantly here. Now, Chapter 27... Under attack. This is you. Bring us back to nine eleven, two thousand and one, 2001, Manhattan, a place I love very much. Jim, Tony, and Phil are desperate to rescue Mike, so we're still in this building again, everybody. And, of course, they're asking for a Jack because they need to get a Jack to get him out. But the Jack is not going to be coming because there is the attack on the, the World Trade Center on that day. The Twin Towers collapse. And any rescue um, item is going to go towards the um, the twin towers. So this is, a, you know, a poignant chapter. I think it's, you know, for particularly for a lot of Americans, that day is very, very, you know, significant. Talk us through this chapter, Bruce. Okay. Why are you talking about that?
0: Um. You know, I mentioned earlier that the spiritual world that exists around us has influence on the physical world that we live in each day. There's a war going on and people don't realize it because it's invisible to them. But I'm convinced in, you know, that in the, in the largest sense, the attack on the towers was spiritually motivated and um again, this chapter is is a chapter that's taking place in the physical world, and it's the chapter in which um <clears throat> uh, Jim and Tony and Phil and Mike's team come to realize that that not they don't realize that mike is under attack in in a spiritual realm while they suddenly realize that they're under attack in the physical realm so um it adds a lot of tension to the story because uh what ends up happening is the disaster at the twin towers Draws all of the resources that were focused on saving Mike. It draws them away, and suddenly they they can't get the equipment they need. Uh, they can't get the supplies that they need. Uh, it's a it's a major disaster for Mike, <clears throat> and he puts his team in the position of having to choose. Are having to figure out what they can do to try to save him. They're on the verge of giving up. And, uh, you know, that's something that Jim refuses to do. So it establishes that bond between he and Mike, but it also establishes the reality that Mike is caught up in a spiritual realm and and that realm is influencing the physical world.
1: Interesting. Mm. Um, now, for me, the book takes a different, you know, it takes a, a different twist, takes a different route. And for me, this starts at chapter 30, <laughs> um, Gog's Vengeance. And when you read the book, everybody, I think you'll agree with me that Bruce's it's taking us onto a different plane here, a different level, different playing field, but still within the realms of what the book is all about. Here we have Azul talking about a child. Hmm, is it the child of Mike when he was a boy? Don't know. Up to you, the viewer, to find that out. Um we've you talking about watchers, referring to you know, gross deformity. You talk about the biblical city of Enoch the sacrifices of the people of Canaan, what they made, ceremonial births, Zamyasals, dominating power. I know who Gog is, but can you tell the listeners the significance of Gog, not only in this chapter, but throughout the book?
0: Okay, I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) Okay, so what's happening in chapter 30 is that Azazel, again, the demon, is relating the past to uh, Mike. He's talking to him about things that happened in the past. And <clears throat> Mike wants to know very much, in this, in this negotiation that's going on between he and the demon, about how they can escape the Eubleyette. Mike very much wants to know why the demon is imprisoned here. What did you do to, to deserve this? I mean, your buddies. Mike points out to him that your buddies aren't here. You're the only one that's here. Uh, why is that? Um, Azazel is very reluctant to relate that truth. And so he begins by giving Mike a history of man, oh, actually of the world, even before man was a part of it. But in this particular chapter, he's talking about the result of the, of the, uh, the relationship between these fallen angels and human women. And that relationship was these deformed giants that used to roam the world. And, uh, the giants were very significant. I'm not going to get into that here because it's a, it's a very deep subject and it would take hours to, to go through, but they're very significant in, in, uh, in the history of you know, what what happened in all three realms of the world. So, what's happening here is, I think a major point that Mike makes in this chapter is that men learned the art of war from these fallen angels whom they saw as gods. And... These gods, in an effort to try to uh to try to replace men on the earth, you know they men were created in God's image, these fallen angels wanted to create a race in their own image, and uh-huh. so that's what these Nephilim, these giants were they were they were the result of this this union between human women and fallen angels. And it turned out to be an absolute disaster. And, And it was a disaster for everybody. Eventually it was a disaster for men, for God, for the fallen angels and for the giants themselves. So anyway, the important point is this, that because of Gog, Azazel taught the people of Canaan the art of war. Oh, I'm sorry, the the people of Enoch. He taught them the art of war, and as you know, as everybody knows, it's it's with us to this day.
1: Wow, fascinating. Um, let's go to the final chapter that we're going to talk about, Bruce, which is chapter thirty-eight. Um demonic confession. Uh, for me, Bruce, this book is almost a tale of two stories put into one book. Because at the beginning, you have Mike rescuing street kids, and from chapter 30 onwards, you change gear, so to speak. We read more about high priests, magical powers of the beings. Um, You take us on a completely different plane. For example, in this um, Demonic Confessions chapter, you talk about uh, Nimrod and his en- entourage of soldiers. You talk about a lion by his side. We have an angel, Trinity, who has come from heaven to earth so that the Lord would have first-hand knowledge of Nimrod and his affairs. We've got a tower with many levels, characters like Duranki and Malki Tesegda. I have to say, Bruce... I've never known a book to be so dramatically different from start to end, both in characters and in the storyline. Why have you done this?
0: Okay, so... uh, Prior to this chapter, the story becomes uh, rather metaphoric. Uh, We didn't cover the chapter where... Uh Mike has this hallucination about being dead and uh a goat finds him in the middle of the desert so i I won't go into all that but it's but it's all metaphoric, and it was a way of of bringing Mike back to the Yet because he had escaped. Or thought he did anyway, but he ends up back there in chapter 38. What's happening here is, um, the point of view has changed to a third person. It's a narration now. Uh-huh. And what's happening is, is happened in the past. We're talking about Nimrod, who has built the Tower of Babel, which, uh, as you may know, was built in defiance of god in other words it was man expressing his uh, independence and intellect
1: you know and the tower of course has got different levels and there was only you know the high priests and people who allowed to go above the third level am i right yes
0: yes you're right and that's I mean, I don't... That's me. That's all speculative fiction.
1: But... That's brilliantly done.
0: But, but the story is about a confrontation between God, who's represented in the angel named Trinity. The Bible frequently refers to an angel called the angel of the Lord. Yes. And the first time that that angel appears in the Bible... It appears as three separate people in the story of Abraham. And it's just before the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So I took that theme, you know, of the three persons, and I used that as the Trinity angel. Ah. So you note that there are three individuals yes. who make up this angel.
1: And of, hey, look, write, and of course, you could write. Of course, you could write another they, book on the Trinity, I'm couldn't sorry. you? You could write another book yes. on the Trinity itself.
0: You certainly could, and there's many can. written. Yeah. Um, so, so this angel represents God, who's confronting Azazel for his crimes, because Azazel is the one who has inspired the tower and all of this stuff against God. And so God confronts him, and in that confrontation, God shows Nimrod and the people that Azazel is a liar, that he's not really a god. He, he's, he's a, you know, he, he's serves God. And he's a servant of God, not, not a god himself. And then, and then what happens is he he condemns him to the oubliette. So this chapter is bringing the story full circle. And Mike gets his explanation about why Azazel is imprisoned there.
1: There you go, everyone. Bruce, what's next for you? You know, what any more books coming down the line? You know, there? Oh, there time?
0: are. I, you know, I'm old, John. I'm I'm an old guy.
1: <laughs> old, and old, that, old in maybe you know, not in spirits.
0: Well, I hope not. Yes, <laughs> you're right. I hope not. But but uh, what I really hope is I hope that I have enough time left to write all the books that are in my head. I will tell you this: I'm working currently on two new books. One of them is the next book in the Bible Book Club series. It's called Patriarch, and it's a story of Abraham. It's not the story of Abraham that would take volumes, okay. but it's a story oh. of Abraham.
1: And um, when's that and likely the other to come out? Book, I'm sorry, what? When's that likely to come out?
0: I'm hoping to have it out by September.
1: That's how we get to interview it's, him again, everybody. Yes. Bruce, and, who do you see as your market here? Who do you who do you want to read your books?
0: Um, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, the world doesn't need another Christian writer. The world needs writers who are Christians. And that's what I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be a writer who is a Christians. so I'm not writing for the Christian book market. I want to reach a wider audience because I have a story to tell. It's the same story that saved C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you've seen the movie, The The Reluctant uh, Convert. Oh, yeah. It's, a, it's an important movie, but, but it tells the story about how Um, uh, C.S. Lewis was an atheist and he came to know God because of his relationship with uh, um, the Lord of the Rings. Help me here, John. Who am I thinking (laughs) of? Uh,
1: I can't remember either. So let's stop digging a hole.
0: J.R.R. Tolkien.
1: Oh, J.R.R. Tolkien, yeah. Lord of the Rings, not the Lord of the Kings.
0: And Tolkien made C.S. Lewis see the story
1: in. They knew each other from university.
0: Yes, they did.
1: They knew each other from the university. They were friends. Yeah. He
0: made he made Lewis see the story in the Bible, and that's what I'm trying to relate to people. Uh Is you know is the story there's there's a story there that's important to the world.
1: So where can people get your books from?
0: Well, they can get the digital books from any place that sells digital books, Amazon, iBooks, uh, Kobo, uh, Barnes and Noble, any of them. And they can get the printed book from either Barnes and Noble or Amazon.
1: There you go, everyone. Bruce James Wilson, thank you very much for coming on my show to talk about your book, The Oubliette. A book... Oh, God! I listens?
0: thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's a great pleasure. So go on and have a look at his book, everybody. It's absolutely absorbing. I was captured by it. I'm JT Crowley. Thanks for listening watching wherever you in the world. Stay safe.